It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're very welcome to Thursday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Well, there's a turn up for the books at the Women's World Cup Australia, beaten by Nigeria. That's a real surprise. It is indeed. Anyway, it means that uh, we play Nigeria next Monday and there really is something at stake now for the Nigerians and uh, they'll be looking to qualify. Now, they have four points and if they beat us, I take it they're, they'll make it through to the uh, knockout stages. There you are, just a little uh, ditty from the World Cup. Of course, we were talking to Katie Milady yesterday uh, towards the end of the show, live from Perth when Ireland lost narrowly 2-1 to Canada and we will be joining Katie, uh, Katie again on Monday after the uh, Nigerian game. Well, Welcome to the show. Lots of chat over the next couple of hours or so. We will be paying tribute to the late, great Sinead O'Connor. We have a wonderful story to tell you about her. Don't miss that coming up after two. But on the show today to begin, um, just see news uh, this morning that that 14-year-old teenager youth has been remanded on bail uh, for that terrible assault on Stephen Termini, who was an American visitor in the Store Street, Talbot Street area last week. He's in hospital with life-changing uh, injuries. One boy uh, so far uh, charged in relation to this. There were a number of people involved. And I've been talking to friends of mine. I'm familiar with the area. I told you, I visit there regular, go out and uh, have something to eat in the Talbot Street area from time to time. And there is... Um, there's something about it that you're not at your ease. I have to say that I know that myself. I'll never be there alone. I like to be there in company. But anyway, uh, we're going to talk about the whole issue of uh, violent crime in our towns and cities. And I'm delighted to welcome to Late Lunch a woman with over 30 years experience in the field. She's a community criminologist. Trina O'Connor's with me. Hello, Trina. Hello, how are you doing, Jerry? I'm really good. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I apologise for that. There's something mad happened on my phone there. It's on silent now. Anyway, Trina, look, uh, that area I am very familiar with and I visited quite regular and I know all the talk that's gone on since. But I want to ask you this first. You've been talking about this extensively. Will more Gardaí on the streets, boots on the streets, make a difference? Yeah, absolutely. They will make a difference, but it's not just... Gardaí we need here, Jerry, because we we can't police our way out of this because the issue of young um, males under the age of 16 becoming increasingly violent needs to be approached in a multidisciplinary way. We need to be looking at, you know, young people who are driven by anger. So where's that anger coming from? If they're rejecting authority, why are they rejecting authority? If they have a lack of control over their impulses, um, that could be a trauma response. So they could be 
giving us a message that they're dealing with some sort of trauma. If they're involved in taking drugs, well, then they're going to lose the locus of control. So their their inhibitions are going to be gone. And if they're power-driven, that's the really dangerous one, if they're power-driven. Because if a young person, you know yourself as a teenager, um, you're trying to find your way in the world, Mm. you're trying to find your own status. Now, if you are growing up in a community where some of that status may be based on making a name for yourself or, you know, modelling other behaviours of what you're seeing around you, if that's a criminal behaviour, or if you're proving yourself. So if you're in a situation where you're being coerced by older teenagers, for example, when when we see young people acting in um, a kind of a group or a mob kind of way, in which these three young men did, then there's almost a dilution of the personal responsibility of the act. And if the act is violent, that's where it's very, very dangerous because it escalates and gets very out of control um, really quickly. So let's take it a stage further. This young person has been charged now, remanded at the moment, will appear again. And let's say a sentence is handed down, um, a custodial sentence. You have been saying that really if they're brought in and in prison that it's doing nothing in terms of addressing the real issue or rehabilitating that young boy. Yeah, that, that's the issue. It's what we do with young people when we get them into the criminal justice system. Now, the youth justice strategy um, that was released last year committed to bringing in restorative processes. And to be fair, that is happening, but not enough. So what that means is when we get young people into custodial, we need to work with them around some sort of anger management. We need to give them the mental health supports that they need. If they're in addiction, we need to support that process as well. But there's a crucial piece that, that sometimes is missing, but I know it's there's pilots being done at the minute on bail supervision. And what that does is when a young person comes out of custodial and they're released back into the family, the family are supported through the bail supervision supports. So that means that the crisis that the family are in, it, it, the parents are supported, the siblings are supported, in addition to the young person himself who has come through criminal justice. And that's the key to reintegrating somebody back into their community because the reality is for some young people when they commit crimes, particularly crimes like this that are violent, they become pariahs within their community. And that's writing a young person off. Um, They have to be punished for violent um, crimes, but we also have to acknowledge and accept that something's gone on for that young person. And I said that on something during the week around young people that are getting all of their needs met at home do not come out and... Um, perpetuate violence on random strangers. So if young people are doing that, well then there's something going on for them and we need to find out as a society what it is and put the safeguards in place to stop that young person becoming a career criminal. So your circumstances, you have no choice on, really, the family you're born into, the circumstances where you live and you're saying to me that plays a big part. So it's a deeper societal issue really and that's that's a massive one to tackle isn't it? it it is huge but what i will say about that area and areas where i walk and areas indeed where i grew up myself as a working class woman is that actually your circumstances don't dictate like you right. can be exposed but it, like so many people don't get involved in crime and it is a very small number of young people who are involved in this crime in that area in the northeast inner city and in other areas like we've got situations in other areas where we have the air code gangs and the likes of Bob Brigham and Drotted and Dundalk 
and all these different gangs going around. The, them young people, it's, it's, it's about this kind of kudos that comes with being part of a gang. But just the other side of it where young people maybe in what we call debt bondage, where young people who may have started off smoking grass or getting involved with drugs and they built up a debt to a dealer and then they're in bondage to that dealer. So in a way, they have to commit violent crimes or drugs-related intimidation in order to pay off their debt. And then they're, they're in too far then. And then they're involved in crime and then it escalates. So, uh, look, the social construction of the communities that we create absolutely do have an impact on people growing up. But if we provide uh, social support and support for families in crisis, it's not a predetermined that you're going to be criminal because you come from one area. Because I work with young people from all of these areas and I can tell you this, they're, they're absolute beautiful children. Um, and they don't, they're not born to be criminal, but the modelling for some of them of behaviours that they see and the role models that some of them have is where the challenge is. And, and, that, and that's the reality. We need to provide the safeguards for them young people who are vulnerable and at risk. You've mentioned co- community policing, and I'm familiar here in the northeast where I live that that has been a facet of policing here for some time. You're a real believer in this. You say it's a key uh, strategy. It is indeed, um, because what happens is, for a lot of the young people that we're talking about that come from intergenerational uh, criminality, their first experience of the guards might be the guards coming to raid, raid their house. Um, so they see the guards as somebody to be feared or, or somebody not to be respected. And, and if you get a really good community guard, and I've worked with so many over the years, they do phenomenal work. If they build a relationship with a young person and shows, shows them that somebody in authority is also on their side, is not just there to make their life difficult, that can have a huge impact. And that can filter down and trickle through into communities. Because if one young person sees a community guard and they go to each other, oh, he's all right or she's all right, it almost becomes a contagion. And, and the, the community guard need to be part part of the community. So they need to be in youth clubs. They need to be working almost in a youth capacity, almost like a youth worker. And it's something that they did in Scotland when they invested heavily in the violence reduction units. And what they did was they got the police over there to work with youth work navigators. So in a collaborative piece. So say, for example, if we have a problem on the DART, for example, where there's antisocial behaviour on the mm. DART or on the trains, if you have a collaboration piece with Angada Shia and trauma-informed, trained youth workers, so people who understand ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences, which might lead to a child being triggered very easily by authority, the approach may be different. So they will do a, a targeted outreach response to that young person in collaboration, in partnership with Angada Shia Khanna. That, that results in a much more... I suppose, um, friendly interaction. So it's not so much a, a kind of um, an abrasive approach. And I'm not suggesting for one minute that the guards are abrasive, not at all, because the community guards that I work with all totally understand that how you approach young people starts off how your relationship starts with them. And if you approach in an aggressive or abrasive way, well, then you're going to get a young person triggered and it's going to be escalated before anything, any kind of meaningful conversation or relationship is built there. 
Have you seen this turnaround happen? Because that's what I'm sure listeners are wondering today. What you say is so uh, on the money, so valid, and and it, it is the way to go. But, you know, in a practical sense, have you seen young people, and you said you work with beautiful young people, but have you seen some who've fallen by the wayside and got involved in this nasty stuff be, you know, recover from it and come back and be good citizens? Oh, oh, absolutely. I've I've seen people whose names, surnames, would be well known. So they come from families that are well known criminal families, and with intensive work with you know trauma informed tutors through education, uh, sports clubs. Like I've seen young people who come from the the, the very well known background mm. who are working in multinational, say, in the financial services centre now, because. If you treat young people with kindness and compassion and give them a chance, and sometimes you might need to give them two or three chances. And where I work currently at the minute, I work with a large number of young people who many people will have written off. Um, mainstream school didn't suit them. Different kind of training programs didn't suit them. But the tutors that I have working here with them do intensive, sometimes one-to-one work. And like in the nine months I've been here, I've seen young people turn around and now some are going on. I've got some people going into third level education. Young people that left school with very basic educations through intensive um, supports with, you know, just so dedicated tutors that they are now, some of them are applying for university, others are gone on to apprentice and others have gone to jobs. So I I know it works. I'm, I'm 30 odd years working in communities and I yep. see young people who people write off and all it takes is that one good adult to believe in them and then they, they put a team around them and work intensively. Like young, young people don't want to be criminal. Young people don't want to be frightened because a lot of these young people are very frightened. But I think the key to this and, and the important piece is we cannot accept violent behaviour. It has to be punished. Yeah. You know, kindness and compassion is so, so important. But violent behaviour has to be punished. They have to feel, uh, at that age, it's kind of something that they have to understand. They have to feel the pain. So their liberty has to be taken away. It has to be custodial. We can't allow young people to get away with violent behaviour. But incorporating all you say there into that custodial sentence and beyond that they're just not locked up and forgotten about and then let back out because as you say nothing has been achieved by that. Can I ask you something from your experience because I mentioned I'm a frequent visitor to that area of the city and it's lovely and we enjoy it Uh, but friends of mine had said since Covid they noticed when the city was sort of very quiet and no people were coming into work, shops were closed and everything that a certain element got a grip on parts of the city and that has continued beyond COVID. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it's kind of been a perfect storm. So we've seen, because the, the numbers in Angarda Shea are in crisis at the minute and particularly in the police stations that are there. And like, like let's not forget, there was a new Garda station opened, uh, reopened for Skippen yeah. Street mm. um, in the last number of years. Because in response to the feud that happened in that area, um, there was a whole package of support put into the, the northeast inner city under the Taoiseach's office. So there's been there about five million a year for about the last six years. So 30 plus in funding has been put in. So a lot of things have become really much better and a lot of the locals would say that but there's other sides of it that have fallen down and that's in terms of the actual boots on the ground like we started this conversation Mm. the visibility of police so I think we know there's a crisis in the way um, the deployment of police is how resources are being used 
I hear a lot of the narratives um, from the Garda representative and etc. around uh, rosters and around how uh, Garda are behind desks rather than being out on the streets and that kind of thing. So there's a crisis, that's one part. The second part was the pandemic itself. So the mental health crisis that is coming out of that. So it wasn't just young people that had crisis. And then we see yesterday the report coming out about CAMS and yes. Tusla last week. Um, so them supports are falling uh, asunder as well. And then the other thing, finally, that I would say is the increased drug use. Now, many people that I walk her through uh, different drugs forums, forums that I walk on will say about drugs. For many people, taking drugs is the best painkiller for them. So they're in pain, so they're taking drugs to numb their pain. So it's it's all it's a very very complex and nuanced, I suppose. So yeah, I think what's happening is you, and then you've got the homeless crisis as well. Um, and overcrowding and within that area that we're speaking to where this terrible incident happened you've got a high concentration of um, like supports for people in addiction and that kind of thing so we don't have any uh, in, uh, injection centres I know Merton's Key have been trying for that and Anna Lippi. so the whole drugs policy seems to be falling asunder um, and I've heard some narrative um, from some of the people in, in powers, uh, positions of power over the last couple of days saying drugs and alcohol is what's increasing this violence. I would argue drugs and alcohol is the, is the last thing that happens. It's all of the social issues that happen in the first place that create the trauma for the person so that they end up um, in addiction. So it, it's getting right back to early intervention and that young boy that was arrested, and I think he's since been bailed, is 14, and there's two others since been arrested and questioned. Um, they would have been nine when this process started in that area, the um, NEIC task force. So you would wonder where was the intervention there? How did they fall through the cracks? Well, some always will, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the idea is to minimise that. Before we finish, I hear all you're saying, and you're a fantastic woman. I know you do wonderful work there, and you're held in really high regard. When you mention all those areas combined, you think, my God Almighty, you hear the Minister for Justice speaking, the Taoiseach speaking as well, and they're going to do this, that, and the other. Are you still hopeful that with time and with people taking this serious in positions of power that we can deal with these range of issues? Um, yeah, look, sometimes, obviously, I get worn out by yeah. it. And sometimes I think, oh, my God, are we making any difference? But then what happens is a young person comes to me. Or I meet, like, uh, only last year when we opened up, I was on the dart one day, and a young person came towards me, and I kind of recognised them. Um, and I hadn't met them in about 10 years. And they came towards me, sat down and said, you don't recognise me. Anyway, to cut a long story short, they had gone on, went back to college, uh, now had their own family and were telling me all about these amazing things. And that young person was completely written off. So when you get stories like that, and I get stories like that all the time, but it's so lovely a decade later to meet somebody and see the real change in that person's life. And, and, that, and that young person said to me, you believed in me and that made me believe in myself and then they found more people to believe in them. So I do believe that, yeah, with the right interventions, everybody should be given a chance. We should never write anybody off. But yeah, absolutely, sometimes it gets overwhelming and, and I'm getting old and tired as well. So, um, <laughs> But no, I mean, look, it, 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 it is tricky, but we have, to, we have to keep on and we have to continue to support because, you know, we were all young and somebody looked out for us, so we need to continue doing it. Do you know what today, Trina, you've inspired me and, and I'm sure you've inspired 
people listening to us today who, like yourself, maybe at times wonder and scratch our heads and despair, you know, and, and, and if you mean anybody, by the way, that's getting younger, let me know, because we're all <laughs> in that direction, <laughs> I have to say. But look, at uh, anyway, it's great to talk to you today on the show and thank you so much. You've given us hope and heart and I wish you well with your work. You're doing fantastic work and many more like you and we've got to keep at this. We can never give up. Thanks, Terry. God bless you. Take care of yourself. Lovely to talk to you. Take care, Trina. That's Trina O'Connor there. Isn't she a wonderful lady? She's a criminologist and she's at the heart of things there. And I'm far more hopeful after listening to her. The only thing is this. We must get serious about it. And the people with say and with power must, must, must follow up on the talk and the rhetoric and get the resources in there where it's needed on the ground. Well, it's making the news headlines ever since uh, the story broke around 7 o'clock yesterday evening, the untimely passing of Sinead O'Connor and the outpouring of grief and sympathy and sadness is really amazing. It really is, but not surprising. She was a troubled character, wasn't she? But what a talent she was. What a woman who believed in whatever the subject was of the day and that she was part of her. She was with you, she was really with you and she made no bones about it. Wasn't she beautiful? I was just looking at her. The most beautiful woman with an angelic voice. Let's remind ourselves of Sinead O'Connor. Here she is. I wasn't really setting out to be a pop star, so it didn't really fit the mould. Mm. I was more of a punk, actually. It's been Everybody in music has a story in terms of what they went through. I go out every night and sleep all day. People have all kind of associations with mm. this song. People broke up, people got married, someone died, someone was born. For me, it's about my mother. Since you've been gone, I can do whatever I want. I can see whoever I choose. Uh, my mother died when I was very young. I close my eyes and think of my mother. It's the only time I get to spend with my mother. Yeah. I can eat my dinner in a fancy restaurant. But nothing, I said nothing can take away. thinking to myself I must be strong I didn't know I was strong an artist's job is sometimes to create the difficult conversations that need to be had that's what art is for my name is Sinead O'Connor I am a woman I have something to offer they tried to bury me didn't realise I was a seed. A seed for sure and more besides that will bloom and grow and go on forever. Yes, the late Sinead O'Connor there in her own words with some of our best known songs as well. Anyway, we are going to talk about her for the next while and we're going to the Far East to Bangkok where I'm joined by Danny Corrigan. Afternoon, Danny. 
Hey, how you doing? How's things, Jerry? Really good. Thank you so much for joining me on Late Lunch this afternoon. This is the most wonderful story, and I think it sums up Sinead O'Connor. And it's back to the early 90s, and you, wh- where were you working at the time? I was working, am I allowed to say the name of the restaurant? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, okay, so I was working in a restaurant called Acapulco. I was one of the managers there, and... Um, yeah, it, 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 this story to me, when I heard about it last night, I had to, I put this up on Facebook because I felt like I had to get the story out there. And, you know, it was always a story that I had for years. I, of course, I told a few, uh, everyone knew at the time, but then it was just lost over the years. This, this is probably about 94, 95 now. Mm. And then it just came back to me. And it really, really encapsulates the spirit of who she was. Everything about the story encapsulates that. It was the defiance in her, it was the righteousness in her, and it was the warm-hearted character who was down to earth and looking out for the working man, you know, always Mm. on their side. So that's the the story really, really um, goes there. So I'll go back and I'll I'll tell it to you right from the start. Um, So one night I was... I finished early, it was the end of the month, it was Friday, and I said, oh, look, uh, you know, I'll just go home, have an easy night. And I got my wage back. It was back in those days when we didn't transfer wages as much. And my na- it was just a, a brown envelope, you probably remember them yourself. Yes. And my name was just scribbled on it. And I picked it up, and I was walking down Georgia Street, and I saw a load of friends of mine in the front window of the George, and they were beckoning me to come in, and I, I accidentally fell sideways into the pub and had a few lemonades, so to speak. <laughs> and... Um, I came out, I think, I think it was Reroll was the club at the time, right, uh, in the Globe. And afterwards, about 1 a.m., 2 a.m., I came out, got into a taxi and got back and I realized, tried to pay the taxi man. I was like, oh, my God, I just lost my my wages. Oh. Now, this was at a time when you were living hand to mouth, right? Yes. You were living from pay paycheck to, to paycheck. So I was I was devastated and I was only like 20. 23 at the time, 24 or something. Uh, so I called my mom. Uh, I had to go up to my mom's house uh, to get money to pay the taxi. I was living in Harold's Cross at the time and um, picked up the keys, told her she gave me some money, went back and slept. The next morning, um, or probably the afternoon, the phone was ringing frantically and it's my mother saying, look in the paper, look in the paper. Um, somebody found your money. And lo and behold, there was a story. I think, did you see the picture that yeah. was attached to it? Um, uh, th- there was a picture in the paper, and it was saying, look out, Danny, bye, boy. And look was spelled L-U-C-K, look out. Mm. And it was saying, you know, an unfortunate Danny boy lost his, uh, his paycheck, or his pay, his salary in town last night. And a well-known rock star found it and gave it to Perth Street uh, Garda Station. So... If you um, if you uh, if you see the Stanley boy, go to Percy Garda Station. The guard will sort you out. So I was just delighted, and my mother said, "Look, I'm in town today. I'll go down and get it." Of course, being an Irish man, he wanted to take control of everything. So in she goes, and um, I get a phone call a couple of hours later, and she says, "Now look, I have some good news and I have some bad news." And I said, "Right, give me the bad news first. And she said, okay. So I went down to the police station and I 
spoke to the Gardaí and they said there's no money here whatsoever. It's absolutely no, you know, you're wasting your time, you know, there's no money here. And I was really annoyed and they weren't very nice to me. So she says, can I use your phone? And they said yes and she used it and it was the Evening Herald and she called the Evening Herald and how it happened, I don't know, some miracle. Uh, she was helped by a lot of people, I think, but they were saying, I'll pass you on, we'll see, can we get this to the right person? And it landed on, this phone call landed on the um, editor's desk and he picked up and he's like, you know, I was with Sinead last night. I, I was with that person last night. It was Sinead O'Connor that found um, the, the wage pack and um, I saw her give it to the, the policeman. We found two policemen on patrol on Dame Street and uh, 100% like, so they're, they're absolutely lying. He goes, this is a disgraceful situation. Let me see what I can do. Stay in the police station. So he, I think Sinead was recording in Windmill Lane and he makes a phone call. My mom is sitting there and while she's waiting, she says, will you make me a cup of tea? <laughs> and the police made her a cup of tea and she's sitting down, sipping tea when the doors burst open. And in barges, Sinead O'Connor. Now, I can't exactly say on air what the language that she was using, but let's say it was very unfavorable and she was very expressive. So she was like, look, open up your shower of, and, you know, do you hear me? And these, all these big guard run out to sort of grab this crazy woman that's banging and kicking on the hatch. And they look at her and it's Sinead O'Connor. And she's like, I handed this in last night. I know I did. This is police corruption. And she goes wild. So a senior officer comes out and he tries to calm the situation. Meanwhile, my mom's sitting there sipping her tea, being entertained by all of this, you know, red faced Sinead O'Connor banging her bit. And he's like, look, we'll run a full investigation. Don't worry about this. We'll find out what, what happened and um, we'll, we'll get back to you. So she says... I'm giving you 24 hours to, to find out exactly what happened. That money better be returned to this lady within 24 hours. And they tried to say something and she's like, the effing clock is ticking. You watch it. And then she goes out the door again. And I, and I think she kisses my mom and, you know, spins out the door. And everyone is just standing there going, what the hell happened? But my mom comes home and she says, so the police are going, the, the good news is they're going to do an investigation. And I was like, great, wonderful. Well, this is, you know, I don't know what's going to happen from this. Then next day comes at 7 a.m. There's a knock on my mother's door and she opens the door and there's five guardi, five guarder. And one of them was the superintendent of or the, the main person that's in charge of Dublin, very decorated. And he had a letter in his hand. He goes, Mrs. Corrigan, my name is, he gave his name, and he says, I'm really, really sorry about this situation. And he handed her a letter, and it was an apology letter, um, right from the head office in the Phoenix Park. And he said, what happened was, Garda, and I forget his name, I still have the letter somewhere packed away in boxes back in Dublin. Garda, da-da-da, uh, took the package off Miss O'Connor last night, forgot to write it into the logbook, but it's, we have it now. And he gave the, the um, wage pack to my mom and the letter. And he said, look, if there's anything, and he was winking at her, if there's anything I can do for you, you just let me know. And my mom's like, yeah, fine, thanks. He goes, oh, by the way, can you just let Miss O'Connor know that we got the situation sorted, that everything is okay? My mom's like, yeah, fine. 
So that was just such an amazing story, an amazing series of events. Mm. And like I said, really, really captures the spirit of who she was. There was an anger inside of her, but it was a justified anger. There was pain inside of her. But look, we all have pain inside us from dealing with these systems. And, you know, but the thing was, she fought it. She expressed her anger. And a lot of us saw like, you know, uh, a lot of people might have seen uh, uh, a cranky feminist or something, but really what she was, was she was just an amazingly strong woman Mm. who had a great sense of justice and was just a, a, a lovely person. So that's my story about Sinead O'Connor. It uh, is. We're laying it on to you from Bangkok it, over 20 years later. It is simply outstanding. And the way you told it as well, may I say, Danny, was simply brilliant. Now, here's the thing. Sinead O'Connor, rock star, recording in Windmill Lane Studios, busy up to her tonsils. She found the money, but she wasn't letting that go. She was determined to make sure that that pay packet got back to Danny you and you did get it back eventually I have to ask you this did you ever come across her or have the opportunity to tell her no I came across Sinead O'Connor twice before that in my life and this is another interesting story so I was about 13 or 14 you know I I actually was still in school I went to Sing Street School and I used to go into town to play video games and stuff and it was a this was before um, you know, Dublin really became a bustling capital. It was still sort of early, uh, sort of mid-80s, mm. coming close to the end of the 80s. You know, Temple Bar wasn't developed. It was all shut-up places. It was boarded up. You know, it was quite a rough area. And I got off the bus on West Morning Street, and I saw a character spinning down the street, literally spinning in circles. Um, and uh, it was a very beautiful lady with a shaved head, and she had a long dress on. And she had a red speaker with her, a red boombox. And I remember exactly what she was listening to. She was listening to Michael Jackson's Do You Want to Be Starting Something? And she's uh, like a whirling dervish. She went by me and just put her hand on my face and continued on swirling down West Morning Street. And so, you know, there's so many times that there's so many fascinating almost magical experiences with her, even it was just at a little distance. And um, I, 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 you know, I, I was a photographer. I became a photographer in Dublin. And, I, you know, I, I met a lot of, of sort of famous people back then. And I always thought that I'd meet her again and I would be able to tell her the story that I'm Danny Boy that you found and you fought for his money. And I appreciate it so much. Mm. And um, I do hope now that this story can get back to her family and they see how wonderful of a person that she was. And, you know, and and I think hopefully they they could find some solace in that. Oh, for sure, for sure. Danny, it's brilliant. You really caught our attention and I have to thank my friend uh, and uh, my colleague here in LMFM Radio, Adrian Taff, for making the link between myself and yourself. You know Adrian, I know going back as well. I went to college with Adrian, uh, yes. Adrian yeah, yeah, that's where I learned my photography skills and Adrian did sound and, and media, so Adrian's mm. a great guy. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so he saw it on Facebook. Really, I wanted to express this. It was an important story to put out there. I'm glad it's out there now. You have indeed. Listen, thank you so much for joining us uh, from the Far East today, Danny. Simply brilliant. And you have really encapsulated 
the spirit, the woman that was and will always be Sinead O'Connor. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. What a wonderful story that is. Absolutely brilliant and brilliantly told by Danny too. Let's take a short break and we'll come back and remind ourselves of the brilliance of Sinead O'Connor. What an absolutely beautiful voice. What a wonderful rendition of Raglan Road. It's over six minutes long. I wanted you to have a a listen to it today. It's simply beautiful. It really, really is. And her interpretation of so many songs was just immaculate. I did say, Louise, wasn't she stunning looking? When you you really look at her, she was so beautiful, wasn't she? She was really beautiful. Beautiful eyes. Mm. Very expressive. Unbelievable, and, and I know the late Gabe Barn loved her. He mm. loved her to bits. He was one of our biggest fans. She loved him too. Oh, she did. She did completely. And a troubled soul, I say she was again. The losing of our lovely son mm. uh, to last suicide year. last year was shocking. And my God, she hadn't been seen much since the poor woman. I know a lot of people are saying, there's somebody saying, why is it that all these nice things are said about people when they've passed on? Wouldn't yeah. it be much nicer, Jerry, to say it when they were alive? She withdrew into herself and she was found unresponsive, as you heard on the news there at her home in London yesterday. And it just is shocking. She's all too young to go. But I pray she's at peace now, that our spirit and our soul is at peace. And she was radical and she was out there and she, she, oh my God, such a woman. What she lived in those 50 odd years was incredible. And she was a troubled soul, as I say, too. Anyway, you were doing a little bit of research this morning and a link with Sinead and and the, the Furies. Yeah, yeah, I read there was a fantastic piece in the Irish Times that I I think came from an extract from her book, Mm. if I'm not mistaken. But she was saying during her lifetime when she was quite young, and I think she was in Livermouth in a convent at that time, and um, the Furies were playing a concert and they were allowed to go down. And um, she said that she remembers um, hearing Finbar Fury sing and it was her most favourite song ever which was when you were 16 and she went up to him afterwards and told him that he made her want to be a musician and they became friends later in life but he never remembered that meeting 
Isn't that incredible? Mm. Yeah. She loved the lonesome boatman as well. That he said she he saw into yeah, her soul with that song. With that particular song, mm. but she did say that she absolutely adored this song mm-hmm. when you were sweet 16 from the Furies. She loved it so so much. Made her want to be a musician. Yes. So to remember Sinead today, wherever you are, love, this is for you. When first I saw the love light in your eye I thought the world held not but joy for me And even though we've drifted far apart I never dreamed but what I dreamed I love you as I've never loved before Since first I saw you on the village green Come to me in my dreams of love alone I love you as I love you when you are sweet When you are sweet Sixteen Another one of our regulars returning to studio for the first time since COVID arrived on these shores, Cathy Marr. Thank you so much for dropping into us today. Well, Jerry, and it's younger looking you. <laughs> You're again anyway. <laughs> You're an El Flamasser. That's all you are saying that to me. As I said to an earlier guest, to show me anyone where the time is and marching on for all of us. And I want to talk to them for sure. Anyway, it's great to have you back with us in studio today to talk about a a number of uh, issues that uh, are affecting a lot of pharmacies and, of course, your customers as well. Let's talk first about the shortage of drugs. And in my case, I can tell you again, drawing from my own experience, Atazet is a drug Mm. I took each night, one tablet with combinations in it hasn't been available now for a while I'm taking two instead of one is that the norm yeah, yeah that's a, that's another one I, I think we're in around 300 medicines that are in short supply at any one time in pharmacy some are the high profile ones that we've discussed um, and some of the, that your listeners will know such as Zempic and we've HRT and these really high profile ones but the ones that you've described are the day to day impacts that are happening on everyone um, and it's really challenging it's challenging for me to try and source the medicines and it's challenging for you if I have to say to you do you know what Jerry? we'll double up this month we'll take two tablets this month we'll take two different ingredients next month I might have have to have a tablet for you the month after and that's not satisfactory it's not great patient care my job is around looking after you or my patients and their health and any changes to your normal regimen can increase confusion in anyone regardless of their age or cognitive function anyone can go what did she say again when they get home how many have I to take or why is there two different ones or different colours so we understand it's very difficult for people but why is it happening a lot of people are asking me why um, there's loads of reasons, loads and loads of reasons. And I think we've been unfortunate that Ireland, it's a global problem for sure. And a lot of these big pharma companies, their head offices are, are you know, overseas. And when they're making decisions, where will we send a product? We have Ireland that has five million people and it's the size of Manchester or Birmingham. And yes. I think, OK, to get a product to Ireland, um, we have low drug prices. It's not the cost of medicines here necessarily. 
to get to Ireland, they have to increase fuel for shipping costs. They've had to maybe cross land borders, um, maybe into the UK where Brexit has happened and it's not as easy to transfer any goods through Brexit. Um, the UK also stockpiled a lot of medicines during Brexit and that has now begun to run out for them. So they are now using their own stockpile. We can source medicines through that way. And also we are really much the only English speaking country in the UK and a lot of packaging has to change. Or in this, sorry, in the EU. Sorry, in the EU. Once the UK moved, a lot of packaging, so there's an awful lot of manufacturing problems. But when a big company looks and says, where am I going to send my product? Where am I going to get, get the best bang for my buck? They might send to Germany or they might send somewhere else, but they might get better, better um, margin than sending to Ireland because of the cost of trying to get the product to us. And is this something that's going to continue? Are we going to experience this for the foreseeable future? I would imagine so. Say even the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, the fuel crisis, Brexit, manufacturing problems during COVID, an awful lot of medicines are manufactured in the in China and India during COVID all manufacturing stopped obviously mm. everything almost everyone was sent home for those you know, certainly in the initially few months so there's still a lag time we're still trying to catch up Ireland we have 25% more people in the country than we mm. had 15 years ago even our demands on a health system is increasing a pharmacist survey about three or four months ago anticipated 97% of us in pharmacy have seen this worsen over the past 12 months and about 87% of us expected to worsen significantly over the next 12 months. It's anticipated, I think we spend about 30, 30 hours a month sourcing, just trying to, trying get. to get them. I have four or five deliveries every day. I'm ordering four or five, six times mm. every day. And it's important that your listeners understand that we're all ordering from the same two wholesalers. Okay. All 1900 pharmacies are ordered in this from, country in the, are ordered from the same place. Tell me this, um, is there a danger of running out of critical drugs? When there are medicine shortages, there can be problems. So we have orphan medicines or critical supply issues where perhaps it's a medicine where there is no alternative where there is, and there are yeah. significant problems when that happens for patients. But there are alternatives where, say your example, Atazet has two active ingredients in it to treat. Am I allowed to say what it treats? Yes. High cholesterol. Yeah. And we can't get that brand at the minute. So what I am saying, and you've been told to take one atorvastatin and one azetamibe. That's correct. And that's how it goes. So we can work around that. And pharmacies are doing all of these workarounds all the time. Um, and HRT last year was definitely really challenging for women because at one point we'd no patch, absolutely no patch whatsoever. And we were saying to women, look, I have some gel and I'll, I'll get you to use a gel this month. The following month, I'll get you to use a spray. Maybe a patch has come back in stock, but you might be allergic to the adhesive. There was an awful lot of that. Mm. And with each time there, because the form of the preparation, so it was a patch or a spray, I had to go back to the prescriber every single time to get a new prescription. Whereas with you at the minute, we don't have to do that because yeah, we're doing a therapeutic. And I don't mind them getting yeah. by, but I can see that. If you're taking a number of drugs, sure, I take three in the morning and those two at night. And I still have to remind myself every morning, you know what I mean, to yeah. leave them out and take them because it's easy to forget. You can imagine yeah. somebody who's taken more than me and, you know. Or if there's multiple issues. So yes. say you've got your two at night now and then if I come to you next month and say, Jerry, one of the ones in the morning isn't short supply, I'll have to give you a half a tablet. Yeah. Can you go home and cut that in half? <laughs> yes. Or I'll have to double up and give you two. Mm. So there's loads of issues and we're really pharmacists are working with patients to try and get what best suits them and I'm finding on a day-to-day basis I'm offering people much more often will I cut that for you because mm. I know if I ask you to cut a tablet at home it'll skate across the kitchen <laughs> half of it and it might go missing. Bang, I know but I know exactly what happens with it of course. Our ultimate aim but, but, is 
Come patient on. safety. Yes, of That's course. Exactly and, and what it. you're saying to people, you, we, we all got to bear with you on this. And you're working hard, you know what I mean, to make it as smooth as possible. Smooth as possible. And understand, like, it's not just because I mightn't have it out into lake. It doesn't mean that Drogheda might have it. Mm. Actually, we're all ordering from the same place. So it's really, really challenging. So don't yeah. assume it's poor service from whatever pharmacy you go to. We're all experiencing the same difficulties and we're working hard to, to get alternatives for patients. Okay. I'm heartened the new pharmacy task force was announced on Monday by the Minister. Saw that. And, yeah, and I think within that, they might be tasked with looking at medicine shortages. And, and certainly, and I've spoken to you before, Jerry, and I've been on the airwaves a lot to try and say about the serious shortage protocol. So what that would it mean if something is in critical shortage that I could use my skills as a clinician to say, OK, I can't get product A, but here is an alternative. It's not identical, but it's a safe alternative mm. that therapeutically I could switch someone to without the need to send them back to the doctor. Yes. And, and th- this is what I wanted to come on to now. This would make eminent sense. It's not putting anybody at risk. No. Uh, you're not <laughs> undermining the GP or anything like that because it's so hard, as you know, for an awful lot of people to get a GP appointment. But sure, if I ring any of the doctors in town and they're, they're fantastic, we have a great working relationships with GPs. And if I ring any of them in town and I'll say, look, this isn't in stock, they'll say, what have you got? What would you recommend? Mm. That's what I'm doing anyway. Um, I'm, my clinical skills aren't being recognised by government for it. I'm not being paid for that. That's that's not part of my, my, my remit. So I suppose we're asking for an official protocol to be pe- put in place that if something is in short supply, my clinical skills will be used mm. to suggest a therapeutic alternative to make sure patient outcomes are still the same, that your treatment is still the same. There's no interruption to your treatment. And then when product A comes back into stock, we switch back. Or sometimes the patient may wish to stay. So that's how we work it. It's been introduced very successfully in the UK and you can see these serious shortage protocols kick in when needed and expire when not needed. Mm. It's going to happen. Is that what you're saying? This will happen. I don't want to preempt anything that... But, you know, the talk seems to be that this is going to happen. It makes common sense. Yes. You know, and we are hearing lots of cliches as, you know, why does it not happen sooner? You know, it makes no sense. Like the mm. pharmacists or clinicians, like we're five years clinically trained. You know, there's... Yes. But there's a, the government are definitely only using a portion of our skills. Like we can do so yes. much more. And extending so prescriptions, that's all comes under this umbrella as well. Yeah. So yeah? some of your patients, um, and it's a little bit different if they've got medical card prescriptions and private prescriptions, but currently, and one of the benefits from COVID is the law changed ever so slightly. So private patients will know that when they go to the doctor, the doctor hands them or would have handed them the piece of paper and that was only legally valid for six months from the date of issue. So during COVID, not everyone was able to access doctors. A lot of doctors' surgeries weren't open mm. um, for 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 practice. So the legislation changed on a temporary basis, temporary still in, thankfully, that we could have extended that prescription for certain medicines for an extra three months. So the six months went to nine. nine. And as far as I can see, the sky hasn't fallen in. Mm. So, well, well, I'd like to see that because I, I was uh, under that umbrella of a six month thing when I saw my cardiologist, Paul, and I'd get a prescription. But then after six months, your colleagues uh, that my regular chemist would say to me, Jerry, you need to get that one renewed now at this stage. Yeah. But I feel like I see him, thank God, at the minute, uh, 12 monthly. You know, surely... like Wouldn't it be fantastic if your pharmacist could just say, you, do you know what, Jerry? Your six months are up. We're going to extend it to six yes. months until your clinical check is done. Correct. They could do maybe a blood pressure check at the time. May yep. or maybe not do a cholesterol mm. check. But we need a structured... 
we don't have the legal framework in which to do that and we also need a structured payment mechanism in which to do it. We can't. Yeah. No one will work for free. So mm. we do need to have adequate funding for that. You know, all the time people come into you and especially it's a summertime when people are out and about more than that and they have this little bump or bruise or cut or whatever. You know, you people are very well placed to deal with that type of thing, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we do. That's what we do. And that's probably speaking with people. It's probably one of my best, one of my favourite parts of my job. I think that you can make a difference and you can help someone. Um, and whether it's summertime, whether it's wintertime, that's what we do. My consultation room is always in use. Mm. Absolutely. Are you limited, though? This is the point I wanted to get to. Are you restricted in a way? Do you feel you could be given more latitude there as well? Again, oh. to take the pressure off primary care. Absolutely. I had a young chap with me. Uh, I was working late on Tuesday evening, so I was, we were up until seven, so I was in. It was probably about quarter past half six. And um, I, he had a bite. It had gotten infected. I knew very clearly he had a soft tissue infection. I knew exactly what antibiotic he needed to have. But I had no option but to refer him to Dr. On Call, um, which is a phenomenal service. But um, he he didn't go. He ended up taking himself off into A&E. And he came in to me yesterday to say after an 11 hour wait and an A&E capacity space, he came in with the prescription for the antibiotic that I knew the night before he, he could have could have needed. Isn't that such a waste? Absolutely. Really? And, and with that, you know, there was an additional cost on him in terms of time, in terms of money, but also the, the use of his of the clinicians that he saw. They could easily have been dealing with a much more complex case instead of dealing with someone who I knew had a soft tissue infection and needed a penicillin antibiotic. So there are certain cases, maybe minor eye infections, children's impetigo. There's lots of things that we can treat and are very clinically trained to treat. But the legislation framework isn't there to allow me to go ahead and just do that dispensing piece safely and with the cushion of, of, of regulatory framework. So that's what I would like to see in this task force. I know initially we're looking at extended mm. prescriptions and I'm not involved in the task force. I just I'm delighted to see it an option. And actually with the task force, I think one of the best things within the term, terms of reference that I read is the first part has to refer, report back to the minister by October and the second part has to refer, report back to the minister by January 24. We don't often see such short, tight yes, time frames. Yes. So I'd like to see changes that will benefit the Irish public quickly rather than... And, uh, and of course, there's no compromise on care or safety here. That has to be said. If there's any doubt at all, you're going to the doctor on call or you're going to your GP or you're going to the hospital. That's it. And GPs are out the door. And if the, I mean, that young chap that was in with me on Tuesday evening, if that had been maybe Tuesday morning, 9am, I could have sent him to his GP mm. if they'd had capacity to see him that day. But it was a Tuesday evening. When I saw him yesterday, I'd gotten him to... Draw. I used a pen and I drew a circle around where the infection was. That had spread by the time I saw him yesterday. So if I had been able to treat that really, really quickly on Tuesday evening, it wouldn't have gotten so mm. bad. He wouldn't have had to go into hospital. And these are the kind of things that make common sense to you and to me. There would be some risk of, or some some of the pushback might include talk around for, uh, micro, antimicrobial resistance. So we know antibiotics, we're all getting a little bit immune to some of them. But we don't do anything without the proper framework yes. and without the proper protocols in place. And I think one of the, the big safety ones that we look back and say when, when we started doing flu vaccines, Jerry, everybody thought we were mad. Everybody and even across Europe, many pharmacists, pharmacy organisations thought Ireland have lost the run of themselves. The pharmacists are going to be delivering flu vaccines. And in the initial year or two, it cost me more to provide the service and I, I couldn't I couldn't get paid for it. Um, but now we can see that it's cost the government less because the more pharmacies are doing it, their fee, you know, it's, it's economy of scale. It's, yes. it's costing the government mm. less per fee. 
and it's really successful mm. and people are walking in going can I get my flu jab can I get my COVID jab and it's been really really successful letting people have their treatment close to their home at hours that are are optional for them after work, weekends, mm. whatever suits. So I think when we can get something like this in place, we know hell won't break. No. <laughs> you know, sky won't fall in, it people just, won't die. It, We'd be it okay. Makes, it makes eminent sense as, as I listen to what you say there, to be honest with you. And let's see how this unfolds uh, as uh, time moves on. John's been on to say, I'm taking Pravastatin. Mm-hmm. I, I get my bloods done regularly. I'm told my cholesterol is fine uh, taking the tablets. Do I need to keep on taking them? Depending on what the cholesterol is and depending on what strength he's on. So that one is available in a 10, a 20 and a 40 milligram strength. So depending on what strength John takes um, and what age he is and other risk factors oftentimes. And we don't often always talk about things like secondary prevention. So perhaps John may have had a a cardiac episode Mm. or there may be family history. There may be a reason that no matter how good his diet is, that his cholesterol is always going to sit a little bit higher or his, you know, there's good, bad cholesterol and there's triglycerides so depending on his individual levels it may be lifelong or maybe a case if he's on 40 and things have gone really really well he might be able to reduce down to a 20 milligram mm. or a 10 milligram what we like to see and I'd like to see come out of the task force would be the pharmacist can actually go do you know what you're on too many medicines Let, let's look at streamlining those because we often see you might go to your cardiologist you might go to your endocrinologist you might go to someone else and everybody's adding their bit in and suddenly you could have somebody you know on a tummy tablet because their heart tablet is causing them problems we could actually rationalise and I'd like to see people on less medicines with the same outcomes mm. once we get over more than five medicines that's polypharmacy and that can be there's, there's significant patient risks with that so we'd like to make sure you're taking a medicine that's safe and effective and only if you need to mm. my business my job is dispensing medicines but I only if you need them if I could have anyone <laughs> achieve outcomes without their medicines, I'd be very happy to do it. I'm laughing. I think of my late mother, Mary. She was a lovely, lovely woman. But medicines. She nearly had a pharmacy at home because they'd just be dispensing bags of them to her. And I'd be thinking, oh, my God, ma'am. But uh, here I am in the same boat yeah. myself, taking taking quite a bit. I'd be reluctant to come off the statin, to be honest with you. And I know Paul Paul Keelan, uh, my cardiologist, has said that to me many times. Because people will tell you, you know, there are some side effects. Yeah. You feel a bit stiff in the morning and aches in the old frame and that. But overall, overall. I'm taking them and it's holding me yeah. at a level and I'm still enjoying my food. That's exactly <laughs> it. Once, you know, your liver function test yes, yes, yes. de-prescribing is a big thing so just to make sure that you're not added in things just for the sake of it mm. um, a big thing that we'd always try and talk to people is and I don't know but you sound really infor- in, informed and engaged with your health Terry but I love the term around shared decision making so I'd like you when you're going into prescribers to go okay this is what you're diagnosing me with Here's plan A if you're to recommend something, prescribe something. What's the benefit of doing it? And what's the side effect and the risks of taking it? Mm. And then what's plan B? What if I do nothing? What's the benefit of doing nothing? And what's the risks of doing nothing? And then that every person is involved in their own decision making, Mm. that it's not just something informed upon you. Yes, one way street. Exactly. So I'm really engaged in trying to get people to understand their own health journey and just let's and I'd ask everyone else to come into the pharmacist and go look they're after prescribing this for me what do you think do you think it's necessary what are the side effects mm. whatever information you need ask your pharmacist because we are question. that's our areas yes of question we've about a minute left just on the you mentioned the flu and the Covid jabs there what's going to happen with the Covid jab 
It's really fallen in now to the seasonal vaccine. And we can see, you know, it's, and I got Derry, you and I spoke three years ago and we said it's going mm. to take a couple of years and here we mm. are. Three years on, there are still active cases of COVID. I am still hearing every couple of weeks of, of, of people being diagnosed with COVID, but it's something now as a, as a globe that we're learning to live with. And obviously we've exited pandemic stage. The COVID vaccine and the COVID boosters will go in under the booster campaign and we'll expect an autumn campaign to kick off mm. and it may be a case that you get it with your flu va- your flu vaccine um, it's not the need now to continually get that's the, gone yeah, that's gone so it'll just and they're very few there's only a few vaccination centres operational at the minute I don't know of any pharmacies and GPs that are delivering it over the summer months it's now will fall into the autumn programme mm. and then if you are due one of the booster and on the HSE website it shows who's eligible for the booster and if you're due a booster at that stage you'll be contacted by the HSE and you can pop into your pharmacy and You'll be looked after. Anyway, uh, we'll be talking again soon. It's nearly September and flu season and all that type of thing. It's great to see you. Thank you so much. Cathy Maher from Haven Pharmacy in the League. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Jerry. Five, four, three, two, one. Counting down the top five songs from this week of yesteryear. And today it's... The number two from this week in 1996. But this song existed long before 96. It was actually released first in 1971. And it did nothing when it was released in 71. A couple of years later in 73, it became massive. A big, big number one in the United States for Roberta Flack. What am I talking about? I'm sure you know by this stage because... It's one of those classic songs that has been recorded by several of the big stars in the industry. And the uh, one today was picked up by American hip hop group The Fugees. And they released their version of Killing Me Softly on their second album called The Score in 1996. And it was a big number one for them in the USA and in the UK, but this very week it was just short of top spot. It did make it to number one. Yes, it's the Fugees, number two from this week in 1996 with Killing Me Softly. Strumming my pain with his fingers Singing my life with his words Killing me softly with his song Killing me softly with his song telling my whole life with his words killing me softly with his song number two from this week in 1996 the fugees killing me softly I do like it. I was talking to Louise there. Yeah, it's catchy, isn't it? It grows on you. Well, it's just a big number one hit. Roberta Flack, still be just, just my favourite version of the song, but that is really cool. It really is. Anyway, two in 1996. Just one to go this week and we bring it to you tomorrow, round about this time on Late Lunch. Talented, well-known musician from Kells, Tommy Riley, was in a car accident in February 2020 and he's been in rehab since. His sister Denise joins me on the line to tell us more. Hi Denise. Hello Jerry. how are you? I'm good, thanks so much for having a chat with us today. It's been a long time, 17 months, but he's making progress. He absolutely is, Jerry. and um, I had a, an interview with uh, Sally Harding from the Music Chronicle earlier in the week and 
that's in this week's edition. And in that, I suppose I highlighted the most important point that from the start we knew it was a long journey and we just had to dig deep and pedal in hope and believe that he would make progress. I mean, yeah, there's a lot about an acquired brain injury that is uncertain and unknown and always very individual. But we always had had that hope and unity and strength and belief. So, yes, he is making good progress, which is the most important uh, overarching um, point of the whole story. And that's from a point where he had to relearn nearly everything, hadn't he, at, at the beginning? Yes, well, his accident was on a Sunday night, the 13th of February. He was actually coming home from a, a gig in, Drum, in Muldoon's in Drum Conrad, and it was a very wet, uh, miserable night. Uh, and he just missed a bend on a narrow road. And uh, he was fortunate that um, at some stage he, his car... Uh, went off the road into a, a drain and um, a passing courier, um, a really decent man, lives in the Athlone area, his name is Frankie, and um, he noticed the lights on the car and got out and found Tommy and uh, with his set as a courier, uh, I don't know how he managed to find a signal down in that part of North Mead, but he contacted emergency services and he stayed with Tommy until he was removed and taken to draw to hospital. Well done oh, to that man. We're indebted. Oh, we are indebted mm. to Frankie for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, the purpose of our conversation is today that his rehabilitation has been lengthy and it's costly as well on uh, the family. I know that uh, his family, uh, Annie, Ava and Molly, live uh, in Muller and it's a, a huge ask on, on them all that's involved with this. So what's happening? Yeah. There's fundraisers going on. What else? There are, Jerry. There's, there's a lot going. I suppose from the start, um, so many people approached us all uh, as his siblings and you know, we, uh, Australians, we all grew up in this area with a lot of cousins and relations and really good friends in the area. So a lot of people, and I suppose uh, Tommy himself, uh, to use an expression of my father's, was very hot. And um, so, so many people are just wanting to help out, saying that anytime there was a fundraiser, Tommy would be the first man to step up and support everything too. So I suppose the big piece for us was knowing when the time was right. Because on his journey to recovery, he had a lot of different stages to go through. And you have to make sure that uh, you're not uh, jumping the gun and going in too soon. Um, He spent his first few weeks in an induced coma in Beaumont Hospital. He had to have a lot of um, surgeries uh, for fractures to his face and collarbones. He had two punctured lungs. He had a very difficult time. And it was very much touch and go, Jerry. But he, he came through that and we believe that his his skill as a harmonica player has obviously helped his lungs, I think. Um, but he transferred then to Drogheda and there was an awful lot along the way. And the care he got in every hospital, he was moved then to mm. Monaghan Rehabilitation Unit. They were all amazing because not only are they care, they're trying to support a family who are almost in crisis and are vulnerable and so many questions that can't be answered. And Tommy himself was very vulnerable. But, you know, everywhere, uh, every stage along the way, we were given support and encouragement. And that helped us and in turn helped Tommy, Mm -hmm. uh, which was the critical piece. But yes, to answer your question, he is making progress. Um, He was spent seven months in the NRH in Dunleary, which is is like something from the future. It's like the Starship Enterprise. Uh, their lovely new facility. Um, but, you know, a big piece of Tommy's recovery has been and will always be access to therapies. Yeah. 
uh, and uh, through no fault of any hospital. But uh, therapists are in, in short supply around the country. So everywhere he spent time, they did everything they could. And also the family did what we could then on our visits to make sure that our visits were not just the social, how's it going, but uh, that they were meaningful and that he got something out of it. So we did lots of different you know, uh, activities, games, everything from playing cards, singing with them, reading to them, poetry, or talk that helped because the whole piece, Jerry, is all about restoring the neural pathways yes. and making those reconnections to memories, which he enjoys and enjoys, you know, he loves a laugh, loves a story, all of that, mm. always did, still does. Is he back home or is he going to come back home? No. Well, at the moment, he, he's back since the end of June. He's back in the Monaghan Hospital, yes. in the step-down unit there. So, um, you know, the therapies that he will need and needs ongoing would be speech and language therapy, yeah. and he needs physical therapy, and we're still hoping that he will manage that he's tolerating a little bit on the walking bars, and if he can keep going with that, and if his brain works and he can restore all that, uh, functionality that would be a you know really big piece, and obviously needs occupational therapy. Mm. Um, you know, uh, acquired brain injuries are, are quite unique to each individual, and it's all about how far he can go. But still, early days and recovery for such an injury, and um, we remain hopeful. But um, the fundraisers that are happening are just there. You know, I cannot thank people enough. Um, the support, the solidarity, the goodwill that is out there for Tommy and uh, for all of us, his family and his wife and his daughters and and us, his siblings and his mom. My mom is, is 86 and um, she's lived in this community her whole life, even though she's originally a Kerry woman, Jerry, with a, a good, strong Kerry accent still. Uh, but she taught in Conroe School all her teaching life and she Neil and Minority. And uh, so, again, people have been amazing and... Yeah. There are Sean and Sharon Kiernan, who own Kiernan's Pub in Carlinstown. Um, Tommy was a, a regular there. And, um, you know, we, we go back, our families go back in a long connection with uh, Kiernan's and Riley's are related. But Sean and Sharon are like, uh, they're, they're really good friends of Tommy's. So they've taken on to organise this Tommy Fest. Uh, Sharon is a passionate woman, I can tell you that. And I don't think anyone can say no to Sharon when she can't. So she has a huge lineup of musicians. And artists, she's gotten so many people to sponsor prizes, the Butcher and Clients and sponsoring the barbecue, all of these. Um, and that's happening in Kiernan's Pub in Carlinstown this coming weekend from the 28th to the 30th. So check it out. There's lots going on there and it's all with a view to raising yeah. the money needed to fund Tommy's rehabilitation, which is going well, but will take time. We just want to say that. Listen, I have to leave it there today. Thank you for joining me and I wish you well and wish him and the family well, please too. Jerry, could I just say one, make one more point, please? Because there are so many others. I know that Michael Farley, who owns the hotel in Muller, and Conor Osin, they're also arranging a fundraiser for Tommy. Anne Marie and John Neary are arranging a big night in the Headford Arms Hotel in October. Uh, the Minority uh, Casa Villa and GA Club are having a quiz in McCormick's Pub, along with other things. And uh, Smith's of Rayla Begg. A night for Tommy on the Sunday of the August Bank holiday with music by Just Davy and a barbecue uh, and a raffle. So there's so much lots going on. Going on. L- lots and lots. There's a Facebook page for all of the fundraising events. So it's uh, all for Tommy, fundraiser for Tommy Riley's care and rehabilitation. 
and that all the information is on that Facebook page. Thank you. With a big thanks to Susan Carey from Kells for organising it and the GoFundMe. Brilliant. Um, well, look, I have to leave it there. I'm going to be ran out of the studio. Thank you for joining me, Denise, and we wish you well with everything that's going on. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Denise Riley there, uh, Tommy's sister, and lots going on to help him. Well worth supporting. Just to mention the Tommy Fest, Kieran's Pub, Carlinstown, 28th to 30th, the uh, 30th of July this weekend. Eddie Caffrey's on his way with The Drive here on LMFM Radio. We are back with your final late lunch of the week tomorrow at 1.30. Have a nice evening. See you then. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.